Oh, that was powerful worship this morning, and I don't know about there in your homes, I, I hope it's the same, but uh, the presence of God is just very thick here this morning in this auditorium, and we are so thankful that He has come and He is meeting with us. And real quick, I just want to say again, it was so good to see many of you last Sunday when you drove by the church, and, and, and we're here, and we look forward to seeing you real soon, and speaking of that, just be looking for a message uh, from me via email uh, sometime later today. Uh, in that email, uh, we will be letting you know when the Oasis is reopening. Luke chapter 14 this morning, continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And last week we talked about that there are two phases to the kingdom of God. There is the present invisible phase that you and I are a part of right now, and one day there's going to be the very visible future phase on earth of the kingdom of God. And yet, even though the kingdom is primarily invisible, God is still building that kingdom right now, and it is being manifested in certain ways. God is manifesting His presence through His people primarily, those whose hearts are aligned and devoted with him. And Luke chapter 14, as I began to read it and meditate, it, uh, meditate on it and study it, it just was so interesting to me that, that you saw certain characteristics of those who are part of God's kingdom. And so I thought it would be good to just point these out this morning because they have great practical application to us as God is looking for those to be part of his kingdom and to follow him in this kingdom. And we've talked from the very beginning of this series that this is also a series we want to focus on serving the Lord. And Jesus said, if anyone wants to serve me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. So you, you cannot separate serving the Lord from following him. And so in this chapter this morning, we're going to see, well, what, what characterizes a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ? I'm going to begin in Luke chapter 14. The first thing I see here is love. That those who want to serve and follow the Lord are characterized by love. The kind of love that Jesus demonstrated here at the house of the Pharisee. In fact, even by accepting the invitation of a Pharisee, who was actually one of his enemies, and yet Jesus was showing us, love your enemies, and, and give them an opportunity to come into the kingdom as well. So notice verse 1, now one Sabbath, by the way, this would be the last Sabbath that Jesus sort of observed before he went to the cross. There is no other Sabbath mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of the leader of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. He was under scrutiny. There, right in front of him, was a man suffering from dropsy, or what we would call today edema. So Jesus asked the experts in religious law and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So Jesus took hold of the man, healed him, restored him, delivered him completely, and sent him away, set him free. 
Then he said to them, which of you, if you have a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? But they could not reply to this. Jesus very intentionally did this on the Sabbath day as he did many of his miracles because, again, there was this contention. These religious leaders were not going to do anything on the Sabbath day. They had, they had created all these extra rules and regulations for the Sabbath day, and the Sabbath had become a burden rather than a blessing. And even Jesus said, God did not make man for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. It was to be a blessing, and they had totally ruined the intent that God had for the Sabbath day. And here Jesus is showing us love. Love is to be a characteristic of those in my kingdom. Love not only in accepting the invitations of others and be willing to go into their homes and to show them love, even though they may not want it, but to show love to this man who had been suffering all these years and to take the opportunity on whatever day it was, because every day is to be a day where we demonstrate love to others. Love is to be that, that characteristic of God's people that sort of sets us apart from all others. Jesus said, you shall love others as I loved you, and by this kind of love, all men will know that you are my disciples. Jesus showed love every day to those around him. He demonstrated it. He, he spoke it. He, he expressed it. His whole life was a life of love, from the time he was born to the time he went to the cross and died for our sins. His whole life was characterized by love. And if you and I are going to follow our Savior and we're going to serve him, we need to demonstrate that same kind of love, that supernatural love that only the Holy Spirit can produce in us. Because it's not a love that is natural to us as, as men and women. In fact, many times it will go against our flesh. Our, our flesh doesn't want to love sacrificially and selflessly and unconditionally. But that's the love of God. And you see that love demonstrated here. Now, a couple things also surrounding this scene very quickly before we move to the next one. I, again, as I pointed out in verse 1, Jesus was under scrutiny. They were watching him closely. Folks, as Jesus' followers, that's always been the case. There's always going to be those watching us very closely. What we say, what we do, we are always under scrutiny, you see. And, and just like the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders that were upset that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath day. How dare he do that? We need to also remind ourselves that serving God does not always sit well with others. Jesus was doing the will of God. Jesus was simply loving a man by healing him and setting him free and releasing him so that he could experience life to its fullest, even physically but they didn't like it. You and I are going to have times in our life where in order to do the will of God, that means it's not going to sit well with everyone around us. And we've got to make that choice that our love for the Lord is greater than anything else. And that we are primarily here to please the Lord, not to please people. 
Listen to this verse out of the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul writes, Am I now trying to gain the approval of people or of God? Or am I trying to please people? Question mark. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I were still trying to please people, I couldn't many times be a servant of Christ. Why? Because serving God sometimes means not pleasing others. That's exactly what we see happening here in Luke chapter 14, the first five verses. So the first thing that characterizes this invisible kingdom of God in the life of his followers, his servants, is love. The second, humility. Look at verse 7. Then when Jesus noticed how the guests chose places of honor at this dinner, by the way, nothing escapes the notice of Jesus. <laughs> he has a handle on everything. Remember the story where he watched that poor widow throw her last mite into the offering box? Nothing escapes God's eye. And here, Jesus noticed how the guests were sort of climbing over each other to get the best seats in the house. So he took advantage of what was happening, and he told them a parable. A parable that would illustrate not only is love to be characteristic of my kingdom, but humility is to be a characteristic in my kingdom. He said to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, because a person more distinguished than you may have been invited by your host. So the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your place, then ashamed, you will begin to move to the least important place. But when you are invited, go and take the least important place, so that when your host approaches, he will say to you, friend, move up here to a better place, then you will be honored in the presence of all who share the meal with you. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus is also reminding us that these folks were seeking honor from men more than they were from God. We should not live to promote ourselves, but to exalt God. If we are humble before God, as Jesus is teaching us here, and others, then we can trust God to promote us. See, the world in which we live, the philosophy of the world is, I need to sort of climb up the ladder and, and I need to sort of knock off people around me in order to get to where I want to get to. In God's kingdom, if we truly believe that he is the ruler of the universe, that he can exalt who he wants to exalt and bring down who he wants to bring down, and there's all kinds of biblical examples of this. Think of Joseph, Joseph in the Old Testament, this, this Hebrew boy that was thrown into the pit by his brothers, then eventually thrown into jail, uh, being falsely accused. But God had other plans for that young man, and he ended up being exalted to the second most powerful position on planet Earth at that time, only under Pharaoh in Egypt. Then think of Daniel, this poor exile. Again, another young Jewish boy who is eventually exalted to the second most powerful place in, in the Persian Empire. God can do these things. 
And we don't need to sit there and, and go through our life scratching and clawing and try to, in a sense, get to the top. We need to live humbly before God and others, trusting that if God wants to expand our, our range of influence and our ministry and our lives and all that, God is very capable of doing it. And God can do it better than we can. He can do it even faster and more efficiently than we can. And others will not necessarily be hurt in the process like it is when you and I take charge of ourselves and try to get ourselves to places instead of letting God get us there himself. So notice, after this parable, Jesus gives his followers and those who are listening this spiritual axiom. He says, everyone, verse 11, who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Pride is brought low by God. Humility is exalted by God, which is exactly what James says in James 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And over and over again, in the Word of God, we see where God prizes humility as he prizes a life of love that is demonstrated in the first five verses he also prizes humility so in this invisible kingdom it's not that there aren't certain things being manifested by those of us in God's kingdom that those around us even in the world should see that we are living lives of love and lives of humility. Then verse 12. The next characteristic we see here is unselfish generosity. That is to characterize God's invisible kingdom now on this earth. He said also to the man who invited him, when you host a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors so that you can be invited by them in return and get repaid. Now, folks, Jesus is not saying, never invite your family or friends over for a meal. That, that's not what he's saying here. The key is the very end of verse 12, get repaid, to give in order to get in return. Jesus is saying, it's okay to do that, but every once in a while, we should do things for others not expecting to get anything in return to do things for others that we know they could never pay us back for in any way. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying by saying that my kingdom and the people in it should be characterized by unselfish generosity is he's also, in a sense, saying, let's make sure our motivations are pure when we do inviting and we do things for others. Is there that hidden motivation of, I'm doing this for you, knowing that then you're going to do something back for me. That's the basis. Not that we can't have our friends and family over and invite them over for a meal or interact with them. That's not where Jesus is coming from. In fact, you get that then in verse 13 much more clearly when he says, when you host an elaborate meal, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, then you will be blessed. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, 
You're going to be blessed by what you do, but it may not be at the time or by the people that you're doing it for. Trust God to reward and to bless us for the way we live our life, to experience God's favor, to enjoy God's best. Because he says, notice, they cannot repay you, for you will be rewarded, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus says, don't live to get everything you feel you deserve here in this life again. Live your life in the hope of the resurrection every day, knowing that God will settle the accounts, that God will reward, that God will make sure that every account is settled in a right and proper way. But back to this whole idea God wants to see his people and his kingdom live a life of unselfish generosity. To, to go through life as those that want to give more than they want to receive. And Jesus even said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, these are the things that we should be seeing in the world from God's people. Yes, his kingdom is invisible, but the influence of his kingdom is not invisible. It's very tangible. It, it manifests itself through the lives of those of us who say we are a part of his kingdom and that we should be striving to be loving, humble, and generous. Now look at verse 15. The next one we see is that in God's kingdom, he's looking for people that have the right priority. When one of those at the meal with Jesus heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will feast in the kingdom of God. And of course, this statement is being made by someone there at the feast in regards to the future aspect of the kingdom of God, not the present aspect. But Jesus wants to seize on that and says to him, But don't live your life without thinking about the fact that the way you live your life now and the priorities we have now will affect our roles and our responsibilities in his future kingdom. Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet, a great feast. And by the way, I believe that the man here is none other than God himself. You see that at the end when he talks about my house, verse 23, and my banquet. So a great banquet invited many guests, requested their presence at his table. At the time for the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who had been invited, come because everything is now ready. Now I want to say something culturally here that will maybe help make sense of what's going on here and what Jesus is saying. In Jesus' day, there were sort of two invitations that were sent out to something like this. The first would be sort of parallel to what you and I would call today a save the date. It was to send out the first invitation, find out who would accept that invitation, and then they would take maybe sometimes even days, if not weeks, to get everything prepared, and then they say, okay, now it's time to come. And that was the second invitation. It was much closer to the actual 
feast or banquet that was given. And when the first invitation went out, you sort of obligated yourself by saying yes to be there. So I want you to understand that then what Jesus is saying here is, all these people who eventually say they're backing out of coming, initially, they said in the first invitation, we'll be there. So keep that in mind. After verse 18, but one after another, they all began to make excuses. In other words, making excuses is equivalent to refusing the invitation. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going out to examine them. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married. Well, so what? Bring your wife. I cannot come. In a sense, all three excuses are lame compared to the privilege and the opportunity of sitting at the table, if you will. So the slave came back and reported this to his master. The master of the household was furious and said to his slave, go out quickly then to the streets and the alleys of the city and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and whoever, whoever will come. Because I've prepared my table, the king's table. I want people to come and receive it. So the slave said, sir, what you've instructed, verse 22, has been done, and there's still room. So the master said to his slave, go out to the highways and country roads and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. God wants a full house. God wants everybody at the place around his table. I even think about that, even applying that to churches. It, I think it would bring a smile to God's face to see churches filled up to see his house filled, to see us every day, you know, making it a priority to sit at the king of kings table every day. Because this is how I apply this parable, that every day God sets a feast before each of us as his children. He invites us to come and sit at his table. God, throughout our days and our weeks and our months and our years on this earth, invites us, gives us opportunities, privileged opportunities to be part of his kingdom and what he's doing and serving him. And so often, maybe even initially, like these people who are invited, we say, okay, God, I'll be a part of it. And then as it gets closer or the actual time of service or whatever comes, we sort of back out and we begin to make excuses of what is more important or of a greater priority than following and serving the Lord. And he says in verse 24, I tell you, not one of those individuals who were invited and did not follow through and come will taste my banquet. You see, this is a warning to not treat the invitations of God lightly. I believe God invites us to himself and to be a part of what he's doing every day in some way every week, every month, every year here on this earth. And so often as Christians, because God's kingdom is not the priority that it should be, we have all these other things that come into our life that we say to God, God, this is more important. I need to be doing this, just like these three folks did, rather than coming and accepting your great invitation of following you and serving you and doing your will. I ask you, my friends, what would be greater, what would be more fulfilling or satisfying than doing what God has designed us to do? 
What could be greater than being in God's presence at some point every day? What, what, what would be of, of, of you know, more profound interest to us than being with God, following God, and serving God? And that's why I've sort of summarized it all by saying that to me, besides love, besides humility, besides unselfish, generos unselfish generosity, God is looking for people that put their priorities in the right place. That, that realize that His kingdom, one day that is coming, is more important than any earthly kingdom or any of the kingdoms that you and I might even build up ourselves for our own lives. All that we see one day is going to pass away. Those that do the will of God remain forever, you see. And so... We need to examine our priorities because I believe that those in the kingdom who are following and serving the Lord, they will manifest certain priorities based upon, first of all, their love for the king and then love for his kingdom. Remember, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things that everyone else goes after they'll be added. Priority. Then, look at verse 25. Devotion. I want to talk in this passage for a few moments that we have left this morning about devotion. And before we do that, though, I want you to notice something. Large crowds were accompanying Jesus at this point, and as these crowds were coming around Jesus, he turns to them and says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, can't be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We'll come back to that, but here's the point I want to make right up front. Jesus, obviously, isn't after a crowd. I mean, did you, do you hear the things that he's saying to these people? Jesus isn't after a crowd. If Jesus wanted a crowd, he could have it any time he wanted. Jesus is looking for passionate, devoted followers. So he begins sifting the crowd. You see, the same one who woos us to himself also winnows us. As, as his people, he's always refining. He's always purifying. He's always seeing who's really there. Who's all in? Who's faking it? Who's pretending? Uh, who's really committed and who's not, you see? And Jesus is going to challenge those crowds because Jesus is never after a crowd. I think that's where you and I especially in America and the modern-day church, need to wake up and realize that, you know, for many, many years now, church has been about attracting crowds. If I wanted to attract a crowd, I could attract a crowd. That's not what God's plan is. God told us all that we should be making disciples, not attracting a crowd, you see. Anyone can attract a crowd. But Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations. And there's a difference between a disciple of Jesus Christ 
and a believer in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is making that differentiation real clear here, you see. In fact, we know that this continued to be the case because from this time until the time he hung on the cross, more and more of his followers left him. Until finally the Bible tells us that there was only a handful of people that literally were with him as he was dying on the cross. Four women and one man, five around the cross. A lot of his disciples forsook him and fled. We know that Peter denied him. We know obviously Judas betrayed him. And many of them were following him, but from a great distance. Because the sacrifice was too great. The cost was too high. Uh, they did not want to be seen aligning themselves or identifying themselves with Jesus because the same fate might happen to them as they see happening to him. Where's our devotion to Jesus? What line or limit does it have? And that's what Jesus is all about here. You see, he says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You've got to be willing to carry your cross. So Jesus is saying, your devotion to me must be greater than your devotion to any other human relationship. Any other. And, and it must be greater than yourself. Because many times self gets in the way of following and serving Jesus. Laying self aside, dying to self, verse 27. You see, discipleship is fundamentally a call to allegiance. Yes, Jesus is saying, following me costs you more than anything except not following me. Let me repeat that. Jesus is teaching here that following him costs more than anything except not following who would be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus and serve him? Only those who believe he's worth everything. Where's our devotion? It is above every other relationship. I've seen over and over in my own lifetime, many times, those closest to us keep us from being everything we could be for God discouraging us in our relationship, or we're, we're trying to please our family so, again, we don't end up serving the Lord and living for Him like we could or we should. We allow other relationships to come before our devotion to Christ. We allow the things we want to do, self, to come before Christ. We may even allow material possessions and things of this earth to come before our devotion to Christ, which is why then in verse 33, he says in the same way, therefore, not one of you can be my disciple if he does not renounce all his possessions. Jesus isn't talking about believing in him. In believing in him, today's a day of salvation. You know you're a sinner. Come and, 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 and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the way it is with salvation. But when it comes to following the Lord and serving him, there's a whole different standard. There's a whole other standard. And how many of us are really devoted to Jesus when it comes to being a disciple and serving him, you see. That's why Jesus, in this passage, is basically saying, take time to count the cost. It cost you nothing 
to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Except maybe, I guess, pride to humble ourselves and say we need a Savior. But it costs us everything to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to serve Him. You see? And so, yes, Jesus is building a great kingdom right now, a kingdom that's going to outlast all the earthly kingdoms that you and I see. But it's not manifested in the way the world manifests things. And it's not portrayed in the same way that the world says things should be portrayed. Our values as God's people in God's kingdom are totally different than the value system around us. Even though we are in the world, and surrounded by those that do not share our value system, we are to project the values of the kingdom, this invisible kingdom, every day that you and I are alive. Every day we follow him. Every day we serve him. And the ones that we see Jesus pointing out here in Luke 14 are love, humility, generosity, priority, and devotion. These are the things that we see that Jesus here values as he teaches his people on the way to the cross. The last Sabbath before Jesus goes to the cross that next Friday. How does Jesus end this passage, this chapter? How does it end? The last part of verse 35, the one who has ears to hear had better listen. What's that? Jesus is calling for a faith response to the words that he's just said. First of all, to the crowd that was around him 2,000 years ago, and now to us today. It's a good time for us to sort of reevaluate, where am I in God's kingdom? Am I in God's kingdom? And if there's never been a time in your life where you trusted in Jesus Christ, to be placed into that kingdom, I would urge you, with everything within me, make that decision. You'll never regret it. It's the most important decision you and I could ever make is to trust in Jesus as our Savior. But beyond that, we're even learning on Wednesday night that God has a wonderful plan and purpose and will for our lives, and He wants us to be part of His kingdom in following Him and serving Him. Jesus didn't come just to die so that we could believe in him. He came to die so that we could fulfill the purpose that he created and saved us for. And that purpose can only be found when we follow him and serve him. So we have to ask ourselves, where am I in this kingdom process? Am I following? Am I serving? Am I, am I manifesting Love and humility and generosity and the priority of his kingdom and devotion to the king of the kingdom? Because Jesus said, if we have ears, we better listen. And Jesus is offering us an opportunity, if you will, even now, inviting us to what he is doing right now. Will we be like those folks that he talked about in the story of the great banquet who make all kinds of excuses of why I can't do this or that because there's all kinds of things that are more important? Or will we say to God, God, whatever you have for me today, this week, this month, this year, that's the most important thing. There can be nothing more 
important, more fulfilling, more satisfying, more purposeful that I could ever be part of than you and your kingdom. Let's pray. God, I ask today that all of us would take a moment who have ears that have heard and God, would we consider what is our response to what we've just heard? Will we say, God, I'm satisfied with just believing in you. I'm not interested in following you or serving you or really being a devoted, committed disciple. And that's your choice. But God, maybe there's a few out there that say, I, I, I want more. I want all that God has for me, not only in the life to come, but in this life right now. And I want to say to God today, God, whatever you have for me, I'm going after it. I'm going to be one of those few that lays it all on the line for you, that's all in for you. You're going to see for me every day, God, that I am devoted to you and to your kingdom. No matter what the cost, no matter what the sacrifice, God, I'll follow you to the very end. God, would you work in our hearts today? Because, Lord, I believe that we are even in a, a time of history where you are winnowing, where you are sifting even your own people, where you're seeing who's really with you and those that are ready to go to the wall and those are like, nope, too high a price. I'm going to stay in my little comfort zone. So God, I just pray today that, Lord, hearts would be open to what you have for us. And God, we may be able in our hearts to truly utter the words of this song we're about to sing to you, that God, we, we want to just surrender it all to you. Even as Nicole prayed in her prayer after worship, God, we just release it all to you. We let it go. It's all for you, God. God, that's what you're wanting to, to bring to bear before your people today. May your people respond to you in faith today. All of us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.